Bible church, you'd sing songs about God's Word, isn't it? <laughs> really weird. I don't know. Please open your Bibles this morning to Revelation 22nd chapter. Uh, we got into the summary of verse 2, but we're going to go back through 1 and 2 quickly and uh, take a look at the, the tree of life. Uh, that should ring a bell, but what's it doing in Revelation 22? Because we saw that all the way back in Genesis 2 and 3. So what's it doing in these chapters? That's Maybe there's something coherent about this thing we call the Word of God. Have you noticed that in chapter 1, the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then he, chapter 21, 22, he destroys it and creates a new heavens and new earth. It's fascinating about this creation of the new heavens and the new earth. It's fascinating. It doesn't take billions of years for him to create a new heavens and a new earth. Amazing. It's kind of like that he can set aside all the so-called laws of physics and just do it with a word. That's what the word says, is that he did it with a word. What a, what a blessing that is. But if you look at the Bible, it, it unfolds, if you will. It's a book that unfolds till you get to the cross. And then it starts folding back up after the cross. And you find Genesis 1, Genesis 21 and 22. What do you find Genesis 11? You find Babel. What do you find Revelation 17 18? The two Babylons. You find that there is a story laid out and a story finished. And it's done in 66 books of the Bible that have been interconnected by the Holy Spirit. Amazing, amazing. It is something, it's been said that, that um, man wouldn't write if he could. And that uh, something only God could write. And put it all together into a coherent whole. Where each one of the, the books interrelates with the others. It's fascinating to think about the canon of scripture itself. Well, we're in this last chapter of the book, written around 96 AD, and we find that in chapter 1, the Lord revealed himself to John in a vision. Chapter 2 and 3, he told us about what's going to happen in the church age, eras of the church age. We know that they're prophetic because chapter 1, verse 3 says the words of the book of this prophecy, singular. The whole thing is prophetic as it's laid out chapter 4 and 5 a beautiful picture of the uh, heaven after the rapture of the church chapter 6 through 18 the tribulational period of 7 years known as Daniel's 70th week chapter 19 the Lord comes back at the second advent defeats all of his enemies chapter 20 he talks to us about the, the uh, great white throne judgment those who have chosen for him those who have chosen against him and then, there is light on the subject, and then, in chapter 21, 22, what an amazing thing, a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We are getting the, the foremost declaration of this found anywhere in the Word of God. And you know what? There's just really not vocabulary, I don't believe, to fully explain it. And what we get is human vocabulary trying to explain the grandeur of God. And I think John is limited. He's not doing it from his own energy anyway. But why make up a whole bunch of words that nobody would know in the first century? So instead, he writes it. 
under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and tells us, boy, what's coming is really good. So it's good to get this this uh, laid out because we're in the middle of a culture and a world rapidly turning their back on the Lord Jesus Christ, getting their eyes off of God. That's what we're in. But be not alarmed. Let not your heart be troubled, Jesus said the night before the cross. So let's not let it be troubled. Let's get some more information with which to have that calm and peace that passes understanding. So let's take this time for prayer. First of all, that's, what, well, that's the way you approach any part of the Word of God because spiritual things are spiritually discerned. So you put away all the human cares, problems of the world and decide just to, to listen to the Word of God. Ancient words, ever true. They do change you and they do change me. So let's let them do their work. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you once again for your grace, your love, your mercy. Thank you for this amazing plan of the ages that you have laid out for us. You give us bits and pieces. You, you give us some big points that we know kind of where things are going. But Father, you just keep putting things together, filling in the blanks, filling in the details, letting us know what is coming. And letting us know also there is no reason to be afraid that our faith in you is all, all we should need. So, Father, I pray you be with us this morning. Build our faith. Give us information in which to trust you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are, the first five verses are the tree of life. And in verse 1, he says, And he, which is this angel that has been speaking with John, it says, And he showed me... Uh, he showed me a river of water of life. We went through the exegesis of this last week, so we're not going to do this again. This LT is a literal translation right out of the Greek. He showed me a river of water of life. Bedazzling is crystal. This is a crystal clear river. How many of those do you ever see in your life? Maybe a few that are out there usually got trout in them uh, swimming around. Very cold, but here is bedazzling as crystal coming out of the throne of the God and of the Lamb. Now it uses that definite article there because who's, where's John writing this from? The Isle of Patmos. Who's in control of the world? The Romans. What do they have? A pantheon of gods. So he uses this little definite article here. He says, the God. Not one of many. It's not a committee out there. It is the God and the Lamb. That's the one that takes away the sins of the world. And it says, and in the middle of its main street, it is the new Jerusalem that he's talking about. He's created a new heavens, new earth, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven in chapter 21. The middle of its main street. <clears throat> and it says, and on this side and on that side of the river. That's literal Greek out of there. Either side of the river is fine. I just like to stay with the way the words are. Uh, <clears throat> was a tree of life. Doesn't say the tree of the life. It's not referring right back directly to Genesis 2 and 3. He didn't pull that out of the garden and move it to heaven. In other words. He said it, is a, it was a tree of life. Bearing 12 kinds of fruit. 
yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. We've been studying divine institutions in the first, first session. And four divine institutions. First one is volition or free will. Second one, marriage. Third one, family. Fourth one, nation. And look at nations here, even in the eternal state. God maintains that form of order even within the eternal state. Why would he do that? I, I think it goes back to a lot of things he said that was kind of in the, the overall passage that when we're on our jaunt through the Bible we just miss. Which is that he is going to redeem people for himself from every tribe, nation, people, and tongue. Why have a nation in the eternal state? It's a reminder. God's will came to pass. Complete, complete reminder. Now the main street is divided lengthwise by a river with a tree of life spanning the river. And when you start looking for there's of course no pictures of it. There's only artist renderings. And you start finding that. Usually I find a tree like that and there's a little creek running through it. And this little creek running through it and then on each side is a lush forest and all that. But we don't have any picture of a lush forest. We have a river. Okay. Not a not a creek. We have a Nahar, Hebrew is a river. It's a big one like the Nile that it's talking about. It's a river, and the streets are all gold. So this seemed to kind of capture it uh, pretty well on each side of the river um, with all this fruit. Now the eternal state itself, I believe, is portrayed by the millennial temple. We looked at Ezekiel chapter 47. And then as the millennial temple looks like it's the predecessor of the eternal state. It is a picture of what is, what is happening. It looks on earth at what is ha going to happen in heaven for all of eternity. It looks like that type of picture. Because there's a difference. There's a millennial temple in the millennial kingdom which is here on earth. But who's the temple in the eternal state? <laughs> we are it's a big difference big difference in things so we have to as we study the scripture we have to look at the similarities we have to pay attention to the differences now the pure water portrays eternal life which is received with the imputation of righteousness because part of that passage see was talking about that pure water clear as crystal how about John chapter 4 Jesus with the woman at the well Jesus answered and said to her everyone who drinks of this water when it comes out of this well shall thirst again but everyone whoever drinks of the water I shall give him shall never thirst but the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. So the water portrays eternal life received by the imputation of righteousness. The river portrays how we got there. Through the living water, which is the Holy Spirit. The, ri the river portrays how we got there through the living water, which is the Holy Spirit. John chapter 7, verse 37 See, if you let Scripture interpret Scripture, that becomes part of the problems in Christianity. 
they get so drilled in they don't let scripture interpret itself because they honestly don't see the Bible as a coherent whole where each thing is interrelated but if you let scripture interpret itself it'll tell you pretty well what's going on John seven thirty seven on the last day the day of the great great day of the feast Jesus stood and he cried out saying if any man is thirsty let him come to me and drink he who believes in me as the scripture says from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water but this he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for the spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified under the old testament and under the believers prior to the beginning of the church the Holy Spirit was said to be upon them not in them whenever the church arrived John, uh, Jesus foretold this the night before the cross and he said this is the way it's going to happen he is with you and he will be in you and when did he move inside on the day of Pentecost when those who believed in him were baptized by the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit moved inside so that's a good thing for you to know as a believer in this dispensation or age that we're in the Holy Spirit's inside of you now simple application of that where can you go to hide from him <laughs> okay being upon you is one thing Okay, but David did pray, Lord, don't take your spirit from me. <laughs> but, you know, uh, the upon part could have been taken. But when he's inside, he indwells you permanently at the moment of faith in Jesus Christ. So there is a convicting ministry that's going to go on inside of there all your life. And it's going to wage war with your flesh. Read Galatians chapter 5. It, it's pretty clear. Now, <clears throat> here the river portrays how we got there through the living water, which is the Holy Spirit. How did we get there as Christians? The river's source is the plan of God and the work of the Lamb decided in eternity past by their kingship. At the source of the river coming out of what did it say? The river of the water life be dazzling as crystal coming out of the throne of the God and of the Lamb. That looks at the source. Coming out of it, what's the throne represent? His sovereignty. So he made that decision through by means of his plan <clears throat> sometime in eternity past. They, he and the Son, the Lamb, made that decision. The entirety of the new creation radiates righteousness. Peter wrote about this to some degree 30 years before John did in 2nd Peter 3 11 he says since all these things are destroyed in this way what he has just said is that this present heavens and earth are reserved for a day when they're going to be totally destroyed the heavens shall melt the elements is what it says the, the most basic word in the Greek that you can find to describe carbon hydrogen oxygen and all those things in the periodic table that we're forced to study somewhere back in high school and then forget as, as a rule but all of those things is <coughs> destroyed they're melted and the word that's used to destroy with an intense heat is like a nuclear explosion 
it just <clears throat> takes it to the point of nothing then he makes it all new so all of this stuff and this new heavens and earth all the elements of it are new is it going to be carbon based for those who like to explore I don't know <laughs> what I do know is it's not going to wear out it's not going to run down he's not going to say oh this one's run down let's make another one you know when he makes this other one it is eternal it is forevermore. Now, that's what we're looking at now. This is really, really pretty neat. Second Peter 3, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? How should you act in front of the omnipotent, almighty, all-righteous God? How should you act? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning. The elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. You know, the millennial kingdom is going to be a new kingdom. Righteousness will be the rule, but he will rule the nations with a rod of iron, is what it's actually shepherd the nations with a rod of iron. There's going to be people in the millennial kingdom, just like you and I with sin natures. They survive the trib, they move in there, they repopulate the earth. And you know where there's a sin nature, there's a sin. Okay? That's going to happen. The, this new heavens and earth, new Jerusalem, no more sin. No more sin whatsoever. And, you, and I, you're, everybody sits out there and goes, I'm sure glad everybody else is going to stop sinning. But sometimes we're, we get real familiar with ours and comfortable with them. Say, you know, there's never going to be the sin of worry in the eternal state. We start thinking about these mental things. You know, oh, Frank down there, is, he's got a bigger mansion than I do. Um it's going to be a so what <laughs> it's not going to make any difference what other people have in eternity no coveting can we even remotely imagine that it's not that we covet all things all the time but there's some things we look at and go yeah I wouldn't mind trying that but righteousness the tree of life portrays the importance of the living word <sighs> ancient words long preserved for our walk in this world how about the living word not just the written word Jesus said in John 5 you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life but these bear witness of me how about in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us there's a difference between the living word and the written word the written word reveals the, the living word but this is the tree of life. It gives life, the source of life, the sustainer of life. The abundance of fruit and the variety represent the eternal status of works that glorify God in the many areas in which it may be produced. I think I would go to, you don't have a verse here, how about putting Galatians 5 in there? It's kind of like there's a whole lot of stuff. Galatians 5, you pick up at verse 16 to 23, and you end up with the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness. And that last one that we often forget, self-control. We're in a nation that has kind of lost its idea of self-control.
because they would much rather do what they wanted to do. Each man does what is right in his own eyes than having a, having a self-control to do the things pleasing to God. The leaves. See, you gotta, when, when it gives you all this date detail, then try to figure out what it's trying to tell you. The leaves represent the enjoyment of eternity and that there are still more blessings to come. More fruit. You don't have you don't have fruit trees without leaves on it. You end up with a tree with leaves should produce fruit. See, leaves by themselves indicate there are no blessings. Mark chapter eleven, verse thirteen, the parable of the fig tree was a problem. There were leaves, there wasn't any fruit that went with it. Leaves by themselves indicate there's there's no fruit. There are no blessings, but leaves also tell you there can be blessings to come. There's none at the present time, but there will be more. And what is this tree doing? It is doing something trees just don't do unless God makes them do it. Water, fruit, and leaves do not impart their corresponding symbolism. Now, it'd be real easy to go, well, mate, do we need to go take a drink out of that river? Or do we, know, do we need to go eat the fruit of that tree to impart life to us, eternal life to us forever? Rituals have never had the power to save. I don't think they're going to have the power to save in the eternal state either. Why? Because we're going to be in a body that uh, is not going to get thirsty. There's no thirst. There's, there's no thirst to quench with it. Could you drink if you wanted to? Adam, you see all those trees in the garden? Eat from every one except that one. Do that. We'll have the opportunity to do it. I love the fact that our new body can eat. I'm, and you think about that. You know, some of those things you take a bite of and guilt just, you know... The good taste just kind of goes, oh, this is so good. Why am I eating this? And the guilt just flows through because you knew you had that decadent chocolate, whatever it was, that went along there, and you probably shouldn't have done that because your blood sugar's high enough and all that. But, you know, you don't have to eat anything, this new body. But it can. How do we know that? John 21. What happened? They just caught a whole bunch of fish, didn't they? And they showed up with all those fish, and Jesus already had fish made for them. See? And what, what did they do? They ate. Okay? That would be so great to be able to eat anything that you want and not have to worry about it. I might even like liver then. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't think there'd be any liver. I don't know. Anyway, I don't want to go there, but I did. Leaves don't heal. Fruit doesn't feed the hungry because there's no hunger. Leaves don't heal because there's no curse. Why do you need to heal if there's no, if there's no curse? Now, <clears throat> I read ahead in verse 3. It tells us there's no longer any curse. For the healing of the nations, what is he talking about? He's talking about what he has done. And the tree is a symbol. It is a picture. It is a reminder. It's a reminder. Just like when they 
cross the, the, uh, the river, they set up a monument. When they crossed the Jordan, they set up a monument. What are they designed for? As reminders for all of eternity. Therefore, they are memorials to the plan of God. And notice that regenerate man gains more than Adam lost. Isn't that amazing? We are going to have problems in this world. Testing. Jesus promised it. Someone asked me one time, why God let us go through all of this? And that's not really the question. My response is that it's momentary light affliction, according to Paul. And I think for this momentary light affliction will be more than compensated for all of eternity. Here we are, just for a little... It says we're a vapor that appears for a while and passes through. No matter how long you might live, we're, we're, we're just a, a blowing in the wind. That's all we are. Now, in verse 3, it says, And there shall no longer be any curse. Now, this is uh, the word katathema, which is only used once in all of the New Testament. And it looks at an object that is worthy of cursing. Uh, the M-A ending is a result of something. And when you put that on the end of a noun, this is what you get. And... Uh, that it's an object worthy of, of cursing. It's the result. Uh, a curse means to place down in status. Thema is the word for place. Kata that it took to means down. So you place it down in status. That's where they get the word cursed from. But it says literally, and every curse shall not be again. That's the way the Greek says, says it. There will no longer be any curse. Every curse. Any kind of curse. Down placement, never again. And the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. It is the city, shall be in it. And his bondservants, doulos. That is such a great word. It's such a great word because it is one who has chosen to serve because of the greatness of the master. It is not a forced servitude. His bondservants shall serve him. The word serve, I, this is part of why I like the Greek and the Hebrew, because the, the word serve, there's about six different words you could translate as serve. Okay, even a word like do, which is normally do, you could translate that. This is a word, latruo, that means to serve as a priest. Okay, it has a special technical meaning that goes with the priesthood and it is a future active indicative saying this eternity future is not yet here okay but his doulos will serve him as a as a priest now who's the him God or the lamb uh, doesn't say them it does say him what does that refer to? I believe it's the fact that they're one. Father, Son, Holy Spirit are one. It's just like Elohim. That's a word that young Hebrew students, they look at and they go, uh, that I am ending on the end of it is a plural. 
True statement. False statement. There are many gods. Mm -mm. Because Elohim takes a singular verb. So it says God says it is, uses a singular verb to describe it. So it's the three in one. Very clearly, it's, that's what it's doing. It's teaching the Trinity by simple language. Although people don't like to hang on to that. That's what it's doing. And it's interesting when a plural verb goes with Elohim. It's talking about the gods of the nations, the idols, and all that. The Bible is very precise. In those, men, in those ways. It says his bond servant shall serve him. Who? Father and the son. And they. This is the bond servants again. Shall see his face. The God lamb. If you will in context. And his name. Shall be. <clears throat> on their foreheads. No creature. And the eternal state will ever be cursed again. Romans 8.1 spells it out. Uh, King James adds a verse that shouldn't be in there. It was an I skip copyist error. But it says there's therefore now no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus. Period. That's where it should end. That's where it should end. That other line that goes with it doesn't show up till the 1600s in the manuscript. So there is therefore now no katakrima which is eternal condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. How do you get in him? Through faith. Now, it's lived out in the eternal state. It's lived out in the eternal state. We are inseparable from the eternal king. Now, this is so amazing to think about because the, these are passages that in the middle of all the chaos of the world, they should bring us comfort. If we know these things, John chapter 10, verses 27 to 30. My sheep hear my voice, Jesus said, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them. And they shall never perish. Do you want anything any clearer than that? <laughs> they shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. When you, when you are in the hand of the Lord, there's no power in heaven, on earth, or under the earth that can take you out of his hand. But Jesus goes on. He says, My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And then he said, I and the Father are one. It is the Father's Son, and you are in the hand of the Father's Son. There is no power. The devil himself cannot take you out of his hand at all. They shall, and who, who did the Father give to him? All those who believe in his name. That's how you get in, his, in Daddy's hand. This is based on the cross and belief in Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 3, verse 12 and 13. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he will not go out from it anymore and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name that was a prelude that he gave to who? the church when's it going to happen? when the eternal state starts 
Now, all believers in the eternal state are bondservants. Now, see, that's part of the deal because bondservants means you've chosen to do this. But when you get your new body, when you get your new body, you have no sin nature. Okay? And you're always going to make the right decision. Now, that's hard for us to grasp at this point in time. But you'll never make the wrong decision again. And you will be confronted with the Almighty. You'll be able to see Him just as He is. And you will make the decision and you go, I'm going to serve Him. For sure. That's what we, we are going to do. As we become more and more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, we become more and more like Jesus who came to do what? To carry out His Father's will. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That's what he came to do. To literally see his face as a privilege not given to believers in time. It's not given to believers. <clears throat> we can't do it. We can't see him. I think about Moses. Think about Moses. Oh, you, can't, you can't see me. You can't, you're not equipped to look on my face and live. You can't do that. When you, so what happened? We know about he hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock yeah that's what he did isn't it and Moses got a glimpse and it lit up his face like a Christmas tree is what it did and the Jews instead of getting a little taste of it said put the, put a bag over your head Moses <laughs> your face is too shiny we don't want to look at it now, I know none of us would have done that when he came down from the mountain. But that's what, that's what they did. All of our service to the king will not be forgotten, but rewarded in the eternal state. Now, think about that for a second. This is a verse frequently I claim and I, I point out to people. Hebrews 6, verses 10 to 12, which says, For God is not unjust. Now, look at what it leads with so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name specifically in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints as you serve other believers and minister to other believers your gift functions you have the gift of helps and you're always there to help the gift of service the gift of leadership and you can lead without arrogance when you have the gift of management and you can organize without driving people crazy whenever the, the gift is functioning and that service God doesn't forget it nobody may notice it here on earth but it's all logged in the book he'll never forget that it said he would be unjust if he did but he's not so unjust as to forget it. He says, We desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. Okay? This is perseverance of the saints till the end for the issue of rewards. And it says that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Specifically, the curse of Genesis 3 is forever gone. It is forever gone. There's no more spiritual death. Why did God tell Adam in the garden? Don't eat from that tree. And the day you eat of it, he said literally, dying you shall die. 
There's two deaths. The word muth occurs twice in there. And that's the way it does. Not you shall surely die. It's two deaths. Dying spiritually. You shall die physically. He didn't. That always bothered me when I was a kid. I read that because I had my jaunt through the Bible. I'd read that and I'd go, why didn't Adam die? When he ate from that, if you'll surely die, then surely he would have died right then. But he didn't. And then not till way later, somebody said there's words in there twice. Dying, you shall die. He died immediately spiritually when he ate. Died 900, over 900 years later, the second death. Now, <clears throat> here is the no spiritual death anymore. So that means that we're going to have freedom to choose because God gave us that ability and a bondservant is one that's chosen to serve the master because of his greatness. So we'll still have volition. But there's no more spiritual death. So we're never going to use that volition incorrectly again. No sin nature. Boy, that'll be nice. Although we get really in love with our sin nature because we figured out how to you know, excuse ourselves from certain obligations. We figured out how to rationalize certain things. And, you know, we, we, you know, the old man, as it's called in Scripture, we tend to like the old man instead of doing battle with the old man like we're, we're called to do. There's no sin nature in eternity. Why? There's no sin. There's no curse. No bondage of creation. There's no hostile environment. Right now, the whole creation groans awaiting the revelation of the sons of God. Not anymore. That creation is not going to groan ever again. And no physical death. You know, that new body will never wear out. Can you imagine that? I don't know if we'll sleep. I don't think so. Maybe we will. But if we did, wouldn't it be great to wake up refreshed? I mean, just be able to get up and jump up out of bed. I had an <clears throat> old friend used to pop up out of bed. We'd be at summer camp or something. He'd wake up before anybody else, of course. And he just popped up and he was wide awake. Drive the rest of us crazy. We were throwing stuff at him. <clears throat> and, uh, oh, it's a great day to be alive. Sound like Mr. Rogers out there. And... <laughs> You know, we've been up talking till 3 o'clock in the morning and it's 5.30. Go back to bed. Anyway, but it'd be nice to wake up that way. How about verse 5? And there shall no longer be any night. That's why I wonder if we're going to sleep or not. We don't need to. That body doesn't need to, to rewire itself. Now, no longer be any night. This is the third time this has been mentioned. In these two chapters. Chapter 21 verse 23 and 25. It said it again. There shall no longer be any night. And they. Again it's the bond servant. Still in this context. Shall not have need. Uh, literally are never going to have a need. Of the light of a lamp. Nor the light of the sun. Because the Lord God. Shall illumine them. The word illumin is the word fotizo. When you get a DZO ending on a Greek word, it's a causative. He causes the light. That's who he is. It's a future tense, once again, so it's not in existence right now. We're not experiencing it right now. Heaven is not on earth. 
he says, shall illumine them, the bondservants, and they, the bondservants, shall reign forever and ever. Wow. At the present, our sight is dim concerning the Lord, what the Lord has prepared for us. I think about 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12 and 13. Now we see in a mirror dimly, then face to face. Now I know in part, he says, but then I shall know fully as I have been fully known. Now abide, faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. What's he saying? You're going to have to walk by faith right now. You're going to have to walk by faith, can't walk by sight. In, in the eternal state, we won't need faith, will we? Because we're walking by sight. Everywhere we go, we're seeing the Lord just as he is. So we don't, we don't need that. But now we see in a mirror dimly. Lord, why did you let that happen? We're not omniscient. Our understanding is incomplete. No matter how much we might know about anything. He says, but then face to face. Now, that's a study all by itself. Face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ. But one of the great things about being in front of the judgment seat is that you're going to get to know stuff you didn't ever know here. You'll know, the, you'll know have answers to things like, why did you let this happen to me? And there's the answer to that. When face to face, we'll fully understand all the details. Jesus Christ is the lamp. And the sun radiates the glory of the Godhead. The light of Christ is based on his righteousness. We go back to the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. Little old bitty book in there. Chapter 4 just kind of, it's loaded with information in chapter 4. Verse 1, for behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace. And all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that I will leave them neither root nor branch. He's going to get rid of all evil. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, and that's S-U-N. Commentators have tried to fool with this verse forevermore. It should be S-O-N, shouldn't it? That's what we're looking for, the S-O-N of righteousness. It's not. It's the word S-U-N. The Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you'll go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. Promises made to Israel saying that they're those who what do the will of God become believers one of these days, the Son of Righteousness will rise it's interesting it's not, a, it's not a planet it's a person will rise with healing the lamp, how about every time we look at the sun come up in the morning what does the sun do Shed light, sheds light on everything maybe it should remind us <laughs> of the almighty the lamp refers to the minor details of the plan of God, while the sun's the big picture. All the wiser answered about that lamp that is there. If you got this sun out there, you're not going to need a lot of the, the, the lamp. You're going to be able to see all the details with the lamp. I know the older I get, the more I need a lamp with a brighter light to be at a magnifying glass and all this sort of stuff to, to really get it focused in just right. But in eternity what it's saying 
you're going to get the big picture with the sun, but you got this lamp right down here. You're going to get the details, too. Now, I, I'm excited about that. I'm excited about that. In the eternal state, all regenerate mankind will have a position of rulership at some angel, at some level. Why? Hebrews 2, 7 says we shall rule over angels. So humanity, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and humanity, and for the eternal state, you're going to rule over angels. At least. And then over other regenerate men, depending on how much you did that which is pleasing in the eyes of the Lord. But you know, there's not going to be any water cooler talk. What do you think about the boss? Well, he could have done it better. There's not going to be any of that. Nor is there going to be the boss throwing his weight around or her weight around. Not going to be any more of that. See why? There's not going to be more sin. We know there's no more sin because there's no more curse. You put all these together, this is called perfection. Something only God could bring about. The millennium rulership is based on godly service in time. Revelation 2.26 He who overcomes and keeps my deeds to the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. That is written to the church. And you have to put it in the appropriate place. You persevere to the end. Till the Lord calls you home and the trumpet sounds. You're going to have a position of rulership over the nations. But our objective today is to see through the darkness. The darkness in this world, it's growing. You know, look at John 1, verses 6 to 9. It's hard not to read John 1 and get excited. Every time you go through it. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. Nothing came into being that has come into being. There came a man, his name was John. Now, there came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for witness that he might bear witness of the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came that he might bear witness of the light. But there was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. What are we supposed to do with this light that we have in Jesus Christ? Take it out into the darkness. We're supposed to spread it. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 to 6. Paul writes there to the Corinthian church, talking about a church that had it all mixed up. They argued about everything. They argued over who baptized who, how you understood spiritual things. They argued over eternal rewards. They, they uh, fought against uh, authority, duly established authority. They permitted uh, immorality in the church. They brought lawsuits against one another in chapter 6. They messed up marriage, chapter 7. They messed up liberty in chapter 8. They messed up giving in chapter 9. They messed up their spiritual heritage in chapter 10. They turned the Lord's table into a drunken party in chapter 11. 
They argued over spiritual gifts in chapter 12. They had no love in chapter 13. Chapter 14, they messed up church government. In chapter 15, they were questioning the resurrection. In chapter 1, verse 2, he calls them saints. <laughs> and some would say, there weren't any there. <laughs> no, to the church at Corinth, the assembly there at Corinth. And in the early part of the chapter, he says, it's not your salvation that you got the problem with from the penalty for sin. The problem is the power of sin running your life and running your church. And he told them in chapter 3, this wood, hay, stubble, gold, silver, precious stones, are going to throw it all into the fire. That's where your rewards come from. So much of it is burned up. And he says, if you've got anything left, gold, silver, precious stones, that'll be your reward. If you don't, you still shall be saved so as by fire. If there ever was a picture of the security of the believer, there it is. Chapter 4. Even of chap of Second Corinthians, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, how did he do that? And you stop and think about it. Did Satan actually put a veil over them, or was it their own negative volition? Was their own choices that went against them? Was it the environment of which they were in? The people with whom they associated? How did the God of this world do it? Not actively, but he did it in a passive way where things were going about. And he says he's blinded them. And he says, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord. And ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God said, light shall shine out of the darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That is our job, to take the light that we have, not be ashamed of it, not be afraid, be not afraid, but to take it out and to learn to gently love and to confront those who have a problem with the Lord, not those who have a problem with me, those who have a problem with the Lord. That's what he's called us to do. May we do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your matchless grace, your amazing love, your incredible plan. And Father, what you've got laid up for us in heaven, you've just given us a little glimpse of it today. And Father, it is so amazing what you, what you have in store. We can't imagine in this body not having a sin nature, battling sin and all those other things. But Father, by faith we walk. By faith we'll stand on your promises. Father, by faith we'll be able to get a glimpse of what eternity is going to be like where we have a full out love for you and for one another. What a day that will be. Let us give you the praise forever in Jesus' name. Amen.